to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much and welcome to a, uh, uh, one of the ongoing series of discussions we have here at the Shorenstein. Uh, today we're going to be talking with Jeff Madrick, a distinguished former columnist for the New York Times uh, and Harper's Magazine who writes frequently, as many of you know, for the New York Review of Books as well as many other outlets and also the editor of Challenge Magazine Journal, I should say, which is one of the finest of the contemporary uh, economics journals working in the English language uh, dealing with uh, issues uh, affecting all of us. Uh, Jeff has written a, a terrific new book. Some of you may have seen the review on the front page of the New York Times Sunday Book Review by Paul Krugman, a testimony to just how important this book, I think, really is. Um, I want to say that this is Jeff's seventh book, and every previous one was a good idea, but it's a lot of books, and I have read almost all of them. Age of Greed, A Case for Big Government, The End of Affluence, and now Seven Bad Ideas are the four most recent, and I commend all of them to you. Jeff was a fellow here at the Shorenstein uh, Center uh, several years ago, and it's my delight to welcome him back, Jeff Madrick. <clears throat> Well, let me thank the Shorenstein Center, Alec, Nancy. Uh, appreciate your sponsoring me here. Richard, I always appreciate <laughs> your support and friendship, and uh, I steal a lot of ideas from him. Uh, <laughs> nice of you all to come. Uh, uh, I wrote, this title gives away the book, I guess how mainstream economists have damaged America. It's irked a bunch of mainstream economists, as you might guess. Uh, Paul Krugman was big enough, I like to think in mind, but maybe also in heart, <clears throat> to call it an important book. Uh, but I got an email just a few days ago, about a week ago, saying if you were really anti-mainstream, Madrick, you would be writing about Karl Marx in your first chapter, oh, and you don't. <laughs> well, the fact is I do write about a Marxist, Duncan Foley, who's at the New School, but I don't really talk about Marxist economics. And then it got me to thinking, am I really such an anti-mainstream person, or am I anti what mainstream economists have done with economics? Am I? angry at what mainstream economists have done with neoclassical economics. Now, there are limits to neoclassical economics. I believe in a kind of eclectic economic theory. Uh, but I'm not so anti-mainstream as people might think. I turned anti-mainstream, probably more or less since I graduated from graduate school, because of the way mainstream economics was misused. If neoclassical or mainstream economics believe the economy only occasionally needs a little boost and it will adjust itself and create prosperity and equality for us all, I'm certainly not a mainstream sympathizer. If efficiency of an economy is identical to prosperity in their thinking, I'm not much of a sympathizer with mainstream economics. 
If labor, they say, is paid what labor deserves, I'm not a mainstream economist. If it means prices are almost always right for financial securities and floating currencies, I'm not much of a sympathizer with mainstream economics. If it means we shouldn't worry about inequality, and many a mainstream economist has, uh, have said we shouldn't worry about it, just unequal opportunity, I'm not a sympathizer. I'm going to go down the list. If it means we need only worry about the federal funds rate, the so-called policy rate, and keeping inflation at 2% a year, no higher, I'm not very sympathetic with mainstream economics. If it means a low budget deficit as our first or second priority, I'm not very sympathetic. If it means government's purpose is only to counteract market failures, I'm not very sympathetic because market failures are rampant and ambiguous. If it means public investment should be modest, I'm not sympathetic. If it means you can really explain growth as a function of something ab as abstract as technology plus savings plus human capital investment, I'm not sympathetic. Growth is explained by far more specific, uh, far more specific factors over time than that. If it means education quality almost fully explains inequality in the U.S., I am not sympathetic. I'm going to stop there. The truth is, <laughs> I could go on. What happened is these tools, these neoclassical or mainstream economic tools swung with the rest of the nation towards what we can honestly call conservative, or at least anti-government. I, I, I think my level of frustration began almost at the very beginning, and I want to go over a little of the history of the last 40 years or so, when mainstream economists did so much damage. Let's begin with Regulation Q. Now, you all may think Jimmy Carter ended Regulation Q, but in fact, a guy named Walter Riston, who built Citibank, effectively ended Regulation Q because he bullied his way through the Federal Reserve and adopted things like cert floating certificate, negotiable certificates of deposit. Regulation Q was a limit on the savings rate that banks could pay. Therefore, it limited the amount of money banks could raise. Walter Riston went around this. The Fed never stopped him. In fact, when his lawyer said, we better get in touch with the Fed on this, and the story's a little more complicated, you will find it in my book, Age of Greed. Uh, Riston said, don't ask the Fed. Let's just go do it. The Fed never stopped him. Walter Riston made all those loans to Latin America with, Euro, with oil money. Nobody stopped him. Was it natural for, private, for the private sector to make the loans to South America with the oil money that the Arab countries collected? No. In fact, some people in the Ford administration, leftovers from the Nixon administration, were worried that it was going private. And they thought maybe the IMF or the World Bank should have some say in how the, that lending was channeled or how the money was channeled. Maybe there should be equity investment in South America. Well, Walter Riston made uh, hundreds of loans. Other banks followed. David Rockefeller resisted for about 10 minutes because he knew there was danger, but he went along with it. He was head of Ch at Chase at the time. And lo and behold, 
the market for loans to South America was privatized, and by the 1980s, we had major uh, South American loan crises. The SNL, SNLs were deregulated in the early 1980s. Astounding. They were allowed to invest in almost anything they wanted to with federally guaranteed savings. How could this have happened in a country that had any good sense? By the 1989 or 1990, we had a major SNL crisis because they invested badly, as you might have guessed, <laughs> though many of their CEOs made a fortune. <clears throat> Democrats rallied. We forget this these days. Democrats rallied against budget deficits in the 1980s because they were Reagan budget deficits. And they used a basic economic principle, one of my bad ideas, says law, to rally against it. Democrats in the 1990s under Bill Clinton, Democratic economists, rallied a, a, using says law against budget deficits and, deficits and used those surpluses to uh, pay down government debt rather than make public investments. Robert Reich made quite a big deal of that uh, when he left. <clears throat> there was an acceptance that the Federal Reserve could solve just about any economic problem by cutting interest rates, by mm -hmm. stepping on the gas. How did this happen? How did we think they could save the day every time? There was the, fed the financial deregulation under Bill Clinton. Now, financial deregulation as I just mentioned, started before that, the deregulation of the SNLs, for example. The end of Glass-Steagall began in the 1980s. It didn't occur in 1999. Deregulation under Bill Clinton, under Democratic economists. The Boskin Commission on Prices, an outrageous set of conclusions made by this commission that price inflation, as reported by the BLS, was too high. How did they get away with this? And finally, the phenomenon of Alan Greenspan. I shouldn't say finally, but Alan Greenspan. Let me leave it at that. What I'm trying to say is that where were economists all this time? For the most part, economists were agreeing with these efforts. There were two sins, sins of commission and sins of omission over this period. And uh, I, I'll I'll clarify that in a little while. But the sins of commission and the sins of omission were all based on an ideology that turned conservative and swung with the rest of the country, a misuse of mainstream economic principles. I boiled this talk, this, uh, these ideas into seven. In fact, there are many ideas throughout this book, but they fit neatly under seven categories. The first category is the invisible hand. Now, mainstream economists will uh, denigrate the idea because they'll tell you nobody really believes in the invisible hand. There are all kinds of exceptions to the invisible hand. We're not that simple-minded that we adopt it uh, without qualification. But the invisible hand tells us, and what Adam Smith said was that participants in the marketplace, buyers and sellers, left to their own devices and seeking their self-interest, will come to an equilibrium point, a price in which everybody is satisfied 
as much as they possibly can be, buyers and sellers. An extraordinary example of a community coming together to meet each other's needs without government interference, without direction. Well, it's a beautiful idea. In fact, it is a too beautiful idea. It is so alluring that it, that it, it, for, it, it results in people losing their sense over it. I always think of Odyssey, uh, Odysseus and the Sirens when I, t make this, when I make this analogy. Now, did economists know that there were qualifications? Sure, but they still called it Ken Arrow. Nobody knew better than Kenneth Arrow, an early Nobel Prize winner, mm -hmm. how qualified this idea was. He called it one of the greatest intellectual ideas of all time. Uh, Robert Nozick, a conservative philosopher, said something similar. Economists will tell you, sure, but we don't fully believe it because there are all these frictions. Well, if they don't fully believe in the invisible hand, why were so many economists until only recently opposed to increases in the minimum wage? An increase in the minimum wage, if you follow invisible hand theory fairly closely, means you lose jobs. Until 10 years ago or so, most economists were opposed to increases in the minimum wage, or at least above a very low minimum. An example of invisible hand thinking. It took empirical evidence to show that, in fact, increases in minimum wages did not create losses in jobs and may even occasionally have created increases in jobs. Empirical evidence, invisible hand. Did they not believe in the invisible hand? Did they, they believe that all of us got paid what we actually deserve? That's what the invisible hand suggests. <clears throat> Why did they not make more of a stink over all that money the bankers were making? Why did, were they not more concerned about the, reduced, uh, the rising inequality and reduced wages? Male wages are lower by some measures after inflation than they were in the late 1960s. This idea infected theory and became ideologically uh, perverse in this period. A second idea related to it is something called Say's Law, mm -hmm. defined by J.B. Say, J.B. <coughs> Say, a Frenchman. And to cut to the chase, it said if you saved, somebody would invest automatically. Now, John Maynard Keynes, by and large, devoted his book, The General Theory, in 1936 to, uh, to undermining that mythology. But did the mythology really leave us? As I said, democratic economists in the 1970s, uh, 1980s argued the deficit was too high. Well, the deficit may have been too high by some standards, but the, but the, ideological, un, the ideological foundation of that was Say's Law. If you had a deficit, you reduced the savings in the economy. Savings went to uh, savings went to the public sector, which undermined private borrowing. If Say's law had been defeated by Maynard Keynes in a serious way, we would not have returned to this idea that the deficit was all evil almost all the time. The really upsetting factor was, as I mentioned, the 1990s, when Bill Clinton and his gang, forgive me, 
use the surplus money, and you know it was rising rapidly, to pay down public debt when we so badly needed public investment. Again, a misuse of an ideological idea. Say's law did not die, and it's come back with a kind of vengeance, this commonly now called deficit hysteria, which has put a lid on our public investment, has put a lid on our ability to spend fiscally to get ourselves out of this slow growth economy, and, uh, and in, uh, in, in general has, I think, led us, led the Democrats uh, to, to an inability to have a position on the economy. My view of the midterms was that, um, my view of the midterms is that because the, de the Democrats worried so much about deficits, or at least what people thought about deficits, they, ha they, could, not they could not come up with a forceful economic plan, a program, a progressive program to sell to the electorate. They could not say we would have strong social programs and strong public investment and strong uh, investment in education because they were worried the deficit would get too high. They were aiming at two targets and missing both, <coughs> keeping the deficit under control and, and, and producing adequate social programs for the public. In effect, they said nothing. They retreated into a kind of silence. Maybe my favorite idea, somebody asked me, was low inflation is all that matters. Hmm. Now, this is important <laughs> as opposed to the other ideas. <laughs> this one is important. Because you may have noticed the nation's economists are obsessed with the idea of keeping inflation at 2% a year. Why? This may, you may find this uh, hard to believe, but there is no statistical or empirical evidence to support a 2% a year inflation rate. 3%, 4%, even 5% will do no more damage to the economy than a 2% inflation rate. Where did it come from? It evolved. It evolved out of a spirit, uh, I think, an ideological spirit and a, a political spirit, but also because of the political power and uh, forcefulness of the right to demand low inflation. Low inflation helps wealthy vested interests. Now the Federal Reserve is fighting like heck to keep inflation below 2%. The, they look at the PCE <coughs> deflator, uh, and that deflator has not even equaled 2%. I think for the last nine months or longer, it hasn't r risen to 2% a year. And yet they're fighting to keep it down. What's going on here? How did low inflation become the, the main goal of the American economy. I would say it's, as I say in this book, low inflation is the only policy, economists argued, that mattered. This goes back to invisible hand thinking, and I want to try to make this clear. What they argued was, if you basically get rid of inflation, the marketplace will m work purely to create prosperity. 
We don't only have invisible hands in individual markets, like for cornflakes or for Buicks. <laughs> the theory is that we have an invisible hand that works for the entire economy, and all these markets come together to one general equilibrium. Now, that general equilibrium is reached most quickly and efficiently if we have very low inflation, because inflation bollocks up our decision-making. It makes us uncertain. It makes it harder to make future decisions, decisions about whether you want to buy a piece of equipment. It makes it harder for consumers to make decisions. If we get rid of inflation, the market will work beautifully. This was the dominating idea. I want to stress this point because I find it uh, hard to believe myself. This was the dominating idea of the people that ran the Fed and that by and large dominated economics in America. Low inflation, inflation targeting was all that mattered. Now, Alan Greenspan had a peculiar way of getting to 2%. He really said 0% inflation is ideal. But because the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers are inflated, they are inflated because, I don't think I'll go into this, but they are inflated because they don't take adequate, uh, they don't take adequate measure of quality of products in the economy. 2% is the right inflation target. In other words, to Alan Greenspan, 2% was really 0% inflation. That's how he justified 2% inflation. Third bad idea. Infl low inflation is all that matters. Fourth bad idea. Uh, I think I'll skip the fourth. Well, you know, I won't skip the fourth bad idea because I like the name of it. Friedman's folly. <laughs> Economics, apart from stabilization policies by the Federal Reserve and to some extent, fiscal policy, government spending, uh, does not have any room for government. There is no real theory of government in economic policy. The only theory of government is that government should be used when there are market failures. So if we're creating pollution, we might want some kind of pollution tax. The market is failing. But market failures are very hard to define and very ambiguous. And some people, myself included, would argue there are almost always market failures to one extent or another. Is that, is that the only time government should enter and intervene? I'd like to think of uh, uh, the economy as a basketball game and economic theory as uh, defining the basketball away. <laughs> we'll play, it's like basketball without the basketball game. Basketball. Basketball game without the basketball. The, uh, um, the inadequacy of a place for government in economic theory has led us down a path towards inadequate public investment, inadequate control of uh, how wages are set, uh, inadequate investment in infrastructure, inadequate investment in clean energy. The list goes on. The fourth, the fourth uh, bad idea is efficient markets. Or to put it more in the vernacular, there are no speculative bubbles. 
Now, economists actually believe this. Um, you say to yourself, how could economists believe that? Well, I think I'm trying to, I think what I'm trying to point out is they believed a lot of disarming things. <laughs> it began as a useful idea. It began at the University of Chicago, but also at MIT, which is also often forgotten because it's also often attributed to conservatives. It began as a proposition that financial markets were so efficient that they rationalized conventional wisdom ra very rapidly into a price. So it was very hard to beat the market. It was very hard even for professional money managers to get a jump on stock prices. It didn't pay. It didn't make sense to invest even with mutual funds. And in the early years of this idea, there, were, uh, there was very good evidence to substantiate that. It was very hard to beat the market. Very few mutual funds beat the market. And when you adjusted for risk properly, you found out that even fewer beat the market on any consistent basis. An excellent idea. Then it got dramatically exaggerated. I think it swung with the conservative nature of, of uh, society in America. And pretty soon, not only was it hard to beat the market, but stock prices were considered right. Stock prices reflected the future value of a company. Think of that. And probably you've heard about this. How the heck could that be? And yet, these economists pursued this idea. They not only pursued this idea, they created they created a body of thought that suggested CEOs should be paid by being given stock options because they will perform better, their stock options will go up and down with the true value of the company. Because of Fisher Markets theory says you can, you can uh, the stock price will reflect the future value of the company. This accounts, this ideological economic theory accounts for a lot of the reason we have so many stock options today and why CEOs make roughly 300 times what their median workers make. It accounts for the fact that I think, I think a lot of people are starting to point to this. Very many bad economic decisions were made by managers along the way to push up in the short run the stock price, <coughs> cutting R&D expenditures, cutting wages, and so forth. There was another bad idea that came out of this efficient markets theory, um, that there could be no stock market bubbles. So you didn't need regulation. You didn't need capital controls. You didn't have to sit around and prick the market bubble. Because if prices were too high, somebody smart would come along and sell. If prices were too low, somebody would come along and buy. The market adjusted itself. Well, I think history tells us uh, that uh, we had a lot, heck of a lot of market bubbles and they did a heck of a lot of damage. And yet some of the Chicago school still, uh, still claims that, mar that these stock market bubbles do not exist. There are a couple of other ideas. Globalization, not globalization itself, but free-for-all globalization, I think was generally a bad idea. 
What it came down to is one policy, one economic policy fits all nations. Doesn't matter whether you're a small nation, a newly developing nation, where your culture is, where your institutions are. By and large, the so-called Washington Consensus was that the same policy fits all nations. It proved very harmful, especially to poorer nations. I think people are starting to get smarter about that. But the wholesale support of globalization was one of those bad ideas that America, even America, has paid something of a price for, but developing countries, even bigger prices. And finally, I think economics as a science, uh, probably I don't even have to talk about that. But there is a mythology that economics is a science. I think economists like to think it is. I think they like to think it's dependent on empirical evidence and statistical analyses and regressions and so on. Uh, um, the conflicts in economics belie the facts. I don't think there are too many other professions where Nobel Prizes are given to two, uh, to two scientists that have diametrically opposed views, but it somehow happens in economics. Um, I should say this, however, however, about economics before you go away with the sense that I think they're all, uh, they're all uh, bad thinkers and do damage. Most of the best criticism of economics has come from economists. So who undid the bubble mythology? An economist, Bob Schiller, who did indeed get a, uh, a Nobel Prize. What did he do? He looked, among the things he did, he looked at stock prices over time and he said, and then he looked back and he said, well, if, uh, if we knew the future dividends or earnings of that company, did the stock price reflect that way back when? And he found out it simply didn't. Now we have enough history to show that it simply doesn't. So, uh, there are many examples of good economists who have done good work undermining some of these bad ideas. Let me now go back to the beginning, which is maybe where I should have started. I believe these ideas generally set the stage for the economic crisis of 2008. Uh, I believe they led to financial deregulation. They led to lack of capital requirements. They led to a sense that we did not have to control compensation. They led to a sense we didn't have to control obvious conflicts of interest in Wall Street, for example, the ratings agents, agencies. They led to a sense that everything would work out on its own. The prevailing mythmaker, of course, was Alan Greenspan, who did not decide to, per, uh, to pursue claims of fraud, for example, in the mortgage market, who did not decide to uh, try to examine whether speculative bubbles were out of hand and why they might be. The New York Federal Reserve never looked inside collateralized debt obligations. They did not look <coughs> under the hood, according to my reporting. Why not? There was a kind of faith that markets would work out themselves. In 2007, 2006, economists claimed they had found the holy grail. 
They had found out how to manage the economy. It's hard to believe in retrospect, but it's true. Olivier Blanchard, a left of center, basically a democratic economist, said macroeconomics is basically sound. He said this in 2008 when the economy was collapsing. The, they, uh, ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve and formerly a respected Princeton economist, said, uh, pro proclaimed that the great moderation showed that they had solved the problem of managing the economy. The great moderation was what described the oscillations of GDP over this period, and they were far more stable since the early 80s than they were in previous periods. This was, to Bernanke and many others, including Blanchard, the holy grail. Now, this goes back, and this will be my last point before we begin to have discussion. This goes back to this idea of the invisible hand. The idea that as long as the economy was stable, there would be less uncertainty. And if there was less uncertainty, general equilibrium would lead us to prosperity. Efficiency would lead us to prosperity. It didn't. Over this period when Ben Bernanke and others were proclaiming how well the economy was performing, consider what happened. Inequality of wages, falling male wages, one financial crisis after another, rising debt. It's fun to remind ourselves how many financial crises there were. In this period that Bernanke said was so darn good, 82, 87, 90, 94, uh, 97, 98, 2000, and finally the big one in 2008. This was a period economists were saying were, was ideal for the American economy. They discovered how to manage it. And how to manage it? Keep inflation low. <clears throat> Don't worry about almost anything else, even speculative bubbles. So my case basically rests on that. They didn't know what they were talking about. And we can talk a little bit more about why they didn't know what they were talking about, what attracted them to this set of ideas, and whether they have reformed sufficiently or really at all so that we can avoid these same problems to come. As you might guess, I don't think they have 2% inflation, to take one example, is still the great goal of the, uh, still the great policy goal in America. Thanks. Jeff, let me ask you two questions just to start. The first is an empirical one. Uh, part of the consequence of the over-indebtedness that led up to this great crash of ours uh, was uh, that we would deleverage, and yet there's growing evidence that we've returned to re-leveraging in the global economy. Does this concern you that we don't seem to, as a global policy matter, gotten a hold of the debt to uh, equity or debt-to-asset uh, uh, ratio? Uh, well, yeah, it does concern me. I, the global issues versus the domestic issues, something I know you worry a lot about, <clears throat> are, uh, are not adequately considered in our policy. We don't have any arrange global arrangements to control 
uh, leverage, to control currencies, to control, to coordinate expansionist policies. Uh, and and um, there seems to be no effort to lead us in that direction. Do I think there's a bubble out there? Uh, you know, this may, uh, this may in the end be wrong. I don't think there is a bubble out there yet. But do I think a bubble could occur? Sure. Do I think uh, I, I worry much more about slow economic growth now <coughs> than I worry about bubbles? Uh, I worry much more about how lopsided our expansion policies are, all monetary policy, all low interest rates, and not fiscal policy. It's a terribly uh, one-sided set of circumstances that could, in the end, lead to bubbles before we get adequate expansion, which I think you're uh, reacting to. But I don't. I think we need the um, we need the expansionary monetary policy now. We need it in Europe because fiscal policy is not doing the job. Let me ask one. Well, thank you. Let me ask one further question, which is Thomas Piketty, of course, has been getting an enormous amount of attention and came here to speak last spring and uh, drew a lot of students and faculty who wanted to hear him talk about this issue of income and wealth inequality, which seems to keep growing and has been growing for three decades now. Do you have a sense that this inequality is something that will keep growing absent significant policy actions, or what, what is your take and how important do you consider it to be in terms of this overall strategy for a balanced growth future? Well, I think the lack of, the lack of <clears throat> growth in wages, to me, I, I look at inequality a little bit differently. It's a runaway at the very top, mostly induced by finance, and a stagnation for the rest. I, I th probably it's the greatest question we face. If wages are not going to rise for Americans, we will not only have economic problems for lack of demand, we will have social problems. And this is the issue that people like the president and future, uh, future policy uh, makers have to address. How do we get wages up for the, rest of the, for the rest of the workers, indeed for most of the workers? So I think Piketty is very valuable in the sense that he's drawn attention to the inequality argument, more at the attention of economists to the inequality argument, because I think Occupy Wall Street and lots of other, uh, lots of other factors have drawn attention to inequality in general. I don't think the economists were there. You know, it's remarkable if you go through, if you go through the series of quotations from econ economists, how many will say, I don't give a damn about inequality. I care about opportunity, but I don't care about inequality, and I care about growth, but not inequality. That's beginning to change. So maybe there's a sign of hope, but until I think it's only going to be the Democrats who are going to get to this, until they start offering a plan that isn't so concerned with budget deficits, but more concerned with economic growth and uh, policies to lift wages, um, I think we're in trouble. Uh, I should say, however, that we make all these we make all these assessments about inequality without having very rapid economic growth. I think the first step, I know this always gets the sustainable growth people a little upset, but the first step is to get growth back to levels it should be at. It's been rather dismal by historical standards since the recession. If we get them back, I think we're going to get employment up and start to see rising wages. Thank you. Let me take questions from the audience. Yes, over here. So, uh, 
you are talking about uh, monet the role of monetary policy, but what about fiscal ex expansion, meaning uh, increased public spending? Uh, that could be a way to actually uh, expand the labor market and uh, provide them wages. Yes, I think I think I, if I didn't say that clearly enough, I should have. Um, yeah, we need fiscal spending. We're in a in, we're in the perfect environment for fiscal spending. We have very low interest rates. We know we can spend money on infrastructure and education. They'll have big returns. It's not really the size of the debt compared to the economy that matters. It's what we spend that debt on that really matters. We got to get away from these idea these old-fashioned ideas that aggregate debt as a percentage of aggregate uh, GDP is the issue. It's what we spend that money on that matters. We're in a situation where we can borrow at very low cost. We have neglected infrastructure for so long. The payoffs have got to be big in infrastructure, if done with even modest care. The payoffs in early education can be enormous. The payoffs in equalizing education. My pet peeve is child poverty. We are a nation that has the highest, the highest child poverty in the advanced world, and we don't attack this directly. We seem to think that the poor parents should take care of the poor kids, and we have so much neurological information about how children zero to two, their lives are affected by, not merely by witnessing domestic violence or drug, drugs in the family, but by negligence. Their neurological future is affected by the negligence. Their brain architecture is affected by negligence. We know it, and we don't take care of it. That is a high cost to those kids, let's remember, and it's a high cost to society because we lose them as workers. So it's the perfect time for a fiscal policy that can raise growth but also establish a foundation for the nation's future and maybe motivate people to care again. Yes. There's been a few. There have been a few articles recently about the growing size of student loan debt and the notion that that could be the next bubble. And leading up to the housing bubble, there were similar articles saying that hey, there could be a bubble on the way. So you don't seem to be concerned about bubbles, but are you at all concerned about you know the, our lack of addressing? the growing student loan debt and its impact on our economy. I haven't examined that issue specifically. Sure, I'm concerned. Do I think it's going to be a bubble on the order of the bubbles we've just experienced? I don't think so. Do I think the student debt is crazy out of hand that we tell kids just go to college and you'll be okay and borrow all this money? Yeah. Can we develop plans to allow them to pay it down more easily through public service for a few years and so forth? Yeah, for sure we can. Your senator here in this state talks about that quite a bit. So <clears throat> I'm concerned. I'm not only concerned about the bubble, though. I'm concerned about misleading kids into taking on enormous amounts of debt and not helping them pay it down. You know, one of, my, one of the issues I raise in the book uh, economists love to pin inequality on education. And when they do their little regressions, they always think education levels equal skill attainment. You know, so if you went to 11th grade or you went to junior in college or something, there's some level of skills. The, 
I, I doubt that education levels are a substitute for actual skill attainment, but it's an easy way to do regression analysis, and it kind of proves their point. The OEC did this comprehensive survey of skills a year ago or two years ago, and they showed the uh, kids at, at the equivalent uh, education attainment in Europe had much higher skills than kids mm. at the equivalent education mm. attainment in the U.S. So, <coughs> you know, reform of the universities, demands for serious skills, uh, uh, all of that is part of that package. So, to me, bubbles are part of the school loan problem, but not the biggest part. Uh, we got to really do something about teaching well. You know, there's an interesting proposal that's been floating for the last few months of using quantitative easing by the Fed to actually attack the student loan problem, to have the Fed buy up a lot of the outstanding student debt and then begin to write it down or extend it or renegotiate it at substantially lower levels. So if the economy as a whole can benefit from quantitative easing, the specific category of student debt is another candidate for Federal, Federal Reserve purchase of outstanding student debt and then it's write down or reduction. So. Next question. This is a group without questions. This is Harvard. Not, not possible. Yeah. Um, so you, you talked about the short term and the long term and how uh, you know, some policy managers uh, favor the short term for their stock options. And you also mentioned how uh, your comments on economic growth as a priority could uh, anger some or, or be controversial towards some people who think about sustainability a lot. Um, do you think there's similar dangers of looking at uh, GDP growth over the short term that can endanger our ability to produce in the long term due to uh, reducing natural resources. Due to what? Uh, you know, reduction of natural resources. If environmental damage is done to our ecosystem, we won't be able to continue to produce if we look to maximize GDP in the short term. Well, sure. I mean, uh, I don't think in the very short term that's a, a serious issue. But yeah, I'd like to see. Uh, a carbon tax like everybody else who thinks about economics. I'd like to see other efforts to control and reduce the use of <clears throat> the use of resources like that. And we will pay in the long run. There is some hope that there are technologies that can pay for themselves, clean technologies. And we should be pursuing that more avidly, I would think. I'm a little, uh, I'd like to see the proof of that. I think it, there's probably a cost to to keeping the environment clean, a cost to our uh, growth, and we've got to learn to share. That we've got to learn to divide the, the who bears that cost. Um, but uh, I'm not worried about sh you know sustaining short-term growth for environmental reasons. Oh yeah, I, guess I meant worrying about short-term growth now damaging you know future prospects for prosperity. Uh, you know, if the focus right now is on getting growth high, are we are we having enough policies right now to prevent long-term damage? There's a, there are a lot of offsetting. If we have prosperity now, it's likely our people will get better educated now. It's likely they'll get better trained because they'll have jobs. The opposite is really occurring. Because we have slow growth, we're, we're demeaning and diminishing the skills of our workers and the participation of our workers and the motivation to educate themselves and, and go out and get skills. So I think the, the concern is the opposite of what you said. I think there's all good reason to, 
develop, you know, to get us growing fast in the near term. But I, you know, but I also think we do have to we do have to think about uh, strategies like carbon tax and more investment in uh, in clean energy. More investment in clean energy could well pay for itself. It will create jobs. It will bo boost the economy. I think. Um, the question, you know, people are working on that avidly. There's some hope there, I think. Yes, over here, right. Um, it, it sounds like you're recommending increasing fiscal stimulus in the form of investment spending, and I'm curious to know what in particular would you choose that, where would you want those investment dollars to go? <clears throat> well, I live in Manhattan, so I'd love to see a bridge <laughs> across. <laughs> a new bridge across the Hudson, but uh, I, th you know, when I read about the need infrastructure needs, we're working on a project. I have an institute called Rediscovering Government. We're working on a project to try and define infrastructure needs. So I would love to see it go there. I am a champion of uh, eliminating child poverty. So let me say something moderately. Radical. I would like to see child allowances without conditions. So each child, you know, the parents of children each get an unconditional cash allowance for each child they have, something that's practiced in many countries. Some of them are conditional. You have to send your children to the doctor. You have to read, you know, get them into school at a certain age. But the zero, uh, you know, I would like to see, med we have some health care experts here, but I would like to see Medicaid access improved for poor people. Um, as we know, you can't find a child psychiatrist if you're rich, but it's really hard to find a child psychiatrist if you're poor. And lots of these kids need them. They have, <clears throat> they start out, you know. So I think there are lots of areas where public investment can be made. Everybody talks about pre-K. I started, when everybody started talking about pre-K, I started saying pre-K was too late. <laughs> and, the, and the evidence supports that. Mm -hmm. It is too late. Not that we shouldn't do it, but it's too late. And you know, it does bug me a little bit, uh, and maybe some of you disagree, so I'd love to hear from you. What bugs me a little bit is some idea that improving <coughs> education is the answer to the social problems of America. It, the education system is not going to do it alone. Teachers cannot bear the burden of taking care of the social issues of the kids when they come out. We've got to do this at zero and maybe nine minus nine months. And we do know, I know Nick Kristof talks about home visitation, but that's only one possible remedy. I'm talking about cash allowances for the kids and health care expansion and so <coughs> forth. Uh, that's a huge issue, and we ignore it in America. But why do we ignore it? I'm grappling with that issue. We don't ignore it, but we neglect it. I'm grappling with that issue now. I think Americans just don't want to, don't have a, a, a there's a condescension towards the poor. We think child poverty is the pro problem of the parents. So let's take care of the parents and let's get them responsible and we'll get them the EIT, Earned Income Tax Credit, and Child Tax Credits and so forth. Our, <coughs> our system is so oriented towards worth, work. You've got to work to get, uh, you know, 
a mother who works and has two kids, little kids and so forth, I don't care whose fault it is. I don't care if they're missing fathers and the, you know, philandering fathers, a highly exaggerated situation. But, but, you know, these kids are suffering. So let's begin with the suffering kids and try to give them a life. And in giving them a life, we'll have a more productive economy because we won't be losing all those kids to work and, we won't, and those kids won't be w entering a welfare system when they're older. So let's get, it, let's get with it. But if we keep worrying about budget deficits and we keep worrying about, uh, you know, responsibility <coughs> and all that stuff, we're just not going to solve the problems in the country. And I wish the Democrats would have a message more like that. Let's get a little angry. We can, you know, and again, if somebody raises a budget deficit with you, just tell them, it doesn't matter what the deficit is, it matters what you spend that money on. Sure, at some point it matters. I'm not being Pollyannish here. But it matters what you spend the, the, the money on. If you're a company and you, somebody was talking to me about this a little earlier, if you're a company that has 300% debt compared to your total revenue, does it really matter as long as you're building that company in productive ways? Let's build America in productive ways. Gosh, sound like Jesus I'm Brown. running for office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, run, Jeff, Jeff run. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Matt Hyman, I'm a, I'm a Shorenstein fellow here. Um, in some ways, the story that you've told is especially puzzling because this period, this, say, 40-year period, is really the period of time where Economists have gotten much better at building models of imperfect competition. Even as well, but these models have often not really made it into the sort of the public face <coughs> of economics. I mean, in 1970, you could, you could claim that perhaps, you know, we couldn't do anything more with the math other than simple supply demand. But with, I mean, we could find half a dozen examples of this, but something like the increasing returns revolution, which is sort of spread out through a lot of areas of, of economics, that's no longer true, right? We have really good models of why cities form, right? Why some parts, why, why te technology and technological sectors are different than, say, logging. Um, so this doesn't seem to be a problem with sort of the substance of economics. It seems to be a problem with the incentives of Econ uh, economists themselves, right? So if, if you know, if, if we were to sort of create an economic model of economics as a profession, right, um, how do we change the incentives of economists right, to actually use these tools um, or to engage with the public in a different way? Well, Let me, I, can I answer that? Yeah. Here are the two steps. Den <laughs> den deny them all tenure. And tie, and, t and tie their salaries to a global Gini coefficient. You watch the incentives. <laughs> <stuff. laughs> Sorry, Jeff, I just couldn't. No, no, I'm not familiar. All in favor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I, I doubt that, you know, I, you know, I'll take you at your word that there are all these models out there, I'm not really fam that familiar with them, that are just waiting to be used and neglected by economists to solve all our problems. Sounds a little fanciful to me. Uh, I think if they could, they would. Uh, so I have a little trouble with your premise. Why are they not incentivized? Maybe the work is too hard, but maybe the payoff really isn't there. 
but, but I, I, I mean, I, I can I can give you several examples of this. But it seems like the part of the, the, the part of the political solution here is really to eliminate some of the the you know sort of the progressive pro progressive economists have you know much smaller payoffs, right? It's, it doesn't pay very much to be a progressive economist. But if you um, if you were giving uh, fifty thousand dollars speeches, right, in front of business leaders, that's that's a good way to pay off a mortgage. Um, how do we change that kind of behavior? It seems like is the real question. Well, I think you've asking. got a point. There's cer you certainly have a point there. The, the economics of the last 30 or 40 years has certainly shifted in favor of supporting wealthy vested interests. It's fair, you know, there's no question that it's moved in that direction. Uh, um, I don't know how to stop that particularly except to call on the ethical uh, sensitivity of economists, you know, to, to raise it. I think, you know, I don't like to say this, but I think there's an ethical issue. And, uh, you know, you get grants, and I see that uh, uh, some people are losing their grants, but there are enormous grants in the system from the NBER on down. And, you know, it's part of the book I talk about. You know, they're incentivized by a wealthy class. They may serve a wealthy class. And how how you think about like who's reading the book, what kind of impact it's going to have not only on like the economic world, but how you translate that to um, the practitioners and the, the policymakers. Uh, it's a beach book for the brainy. Every one of you can enjoy this. So there we go. It's interesting that you ask that question. I'm not sure I ever you know I've written more than a few books. I'm not sure I've ever thought about who the audience was and whether it will transform them. So that's probably pretty negligent on my part. I've thought about what's interesting, what I think is interesting or what I think needs to be said. And I think this needs to be said about the profession. And I do talk about the ethical conflicts in this book. But uh, 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 so you know, it sound, I encourage you, <laughs> if you're going to write a book, to think about who the audience is. Or should <laughs> um, it, it will pay off much more. Unfortunately, if you think about it too long, you might choose another medium. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Economics might be the next one. Jeff. My publisher, <laughs> you know, my publisher publishes Fifty Shades of Grey, and <laughs> therefore can s afford to. <laughs> support my fanciful. <laughs> There's plenty of sadism in economics already. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I'd love to take more questions, but we have now reached the stopping hour. I know many of you have classes starting in nine minutes. So let me one more time thank Jeff Madrick for coming here today. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs>